welcome to the Irish Times Book Club podcast. This episode features a conversation I had with June Caldwell, author of Room Little Darker, at the Mountains to Sea Festival in Dunleary last month. As ever, the podcast recording was preceded by a series of articles about Room Little Darker on irishtimes.com, written by fellow authors and critics including Joanna Walsh, Maria Maeve, Alan McMonagall, Michael Harding, Justine Delaney Wilson, Elska Rahal and Frankie Gaffney. And those interested can still find those pieces on irishtimes.com. Originally, this event was due to take place at the Innes Book Club Festival, but that event was postponed due to the terrible weather. So thanks to Mountains to Sea for facilitating the event at short notice. Without further ado, here's my conversation with June Caldwell. So over the last few weeks, uh, we've been publishing a series of articles about uh, Room Little Darker um, by fellow writers Joanna Walt, Elska Rahel, Frankie Gaffney. But even previously to that, there are some wonderful blurbs from fellow writers. I'm thinking Colin Barrett uh, just compared you to a cross between the ghost of Angela Carter and a drunk George Saunders. And... Belinda McKeown uh, wrote that... Falling my eyes out. When they, and people always write good or nice things about fellow writers. You know, you, you know that that's kind of a given, yeah. especially in Ireland, because we live in a rock and everybody is, like, almost sleeping with everybody else. <laughs> but, um, yeah, <laughs> it's a metaphor, and as, metaphorically speaking. So, yeah, and I was really, really shocked when they came back. They were so good that mm-hmm. I, I thought, oh, my God, like have I really done something right here? Mm-hmm. It was the first inkling I had that maybe that the book was going to be okay. I was just so excited, but it was like that out of your own body thing. I didn't realise it was about me. I was excited about myself mm-hmm. and what I had done. Uh, yeah, so I was quite shocked at that. So, yeah. And was... looking forward from then, like here we are, what, is it almost a year later? It's ten months later, yeah. It's been and they're still crazy. banging on about your book. Yeah, I know, I'm absolutely mortified now at this stage. It's just like... Oh, shut up, because like, the next thing's going to be a disaster if you don't <laughs> stop talking about this. Yeah. Um, I wonder, do you see yourself um, as a writer um, being part of a tradition, or do you see yourself uh, reacting against it, doing things very differently? <sighs> I don't see myself as being part of a tradition. I don't feel that I would probably be able to write short stories in a traditional sense. They're very, very crafted and subtle. They're subtle. I'm not subtle. There's nothing subtle about me. So I I feel that I would be a failed writer if I tried to write traditionally. I also think in the times that we're living in, that's not my job as a writer now. I'm trying to chronicle real life that's happening out there in the Mm -hmm. moment. And real life at the moment, as you all know, is chaotic and extremely disparate and broken up and quite mad. And that's what I want to do in my writing. Um, Yeah, so no, I don't consider myself a traditional writer You did an MA in creative writing and I remember reading another interview um, in which you lamented the fact that you're still being hit over the head with The Dead by James Joyce and um, Mm. Chekhov as examples of that of short story writers that you should aspire to to emulate and you felt it's 2016, 17, 18, you know, things have moved on. Yeah, well, that was, I did it in 2007 and 2008. And, yeah, there was an awful lot of that dead male nonsense on the course. Um, and I just I couldn't relate to those writers. I know that they're brilliant, and I know, I know that they're technically clever and all that kind of crack, but um, it didn't translate into real life. I wanted to be inspired by reading writers who were covering the world I happened to live in. That might seem quite narcissistic or selfish, but that's what I wanted to read. 
and it's only when I came back down to Dublin um, to try and save my own sanity. I volunteered at the Irish Writers' Centre and it was the most wonderful thing I ever did because not only could you sit around all day reading books and drinking coffee, but um, you were allowed to sit in on the courses as well. It was a perk of the job. And I remember picking up The Stinging Fly um, and that was very important. Their, their, um, their anthology, Let's Be Alone Together and reading short stories that were just set in the modern world that I could relate to that were hilarious and some of them are kind of dark and disturbing. And I thought, oh my God, your stories, I could see the potential, mm -hmm. you know, um, to, just for a sliver of time in modern time and how to, how to write them kind of crazily. Because up to that point, I just dreamt about being a novelist. I hadn't ever thought of writing mm -hmm. stories. So yeah, that was a pivotal moment. And sitting in on those courses as well with Mike McCormick and Sean O'Reilly and writers like that, they, mm -hmm. were, they were a real inspiration to me. I wonder, could we enlarge on that? Um, Al McMonagall, um, <coughs> the writer of Ithaca, yeah. uh, he wrote an article for me at the Irish Times on along the lines of it takes a village to raise a writer. And so if I could ask you that question, who are the villagers that um, maybe helped you become the, the author of Room Little Darker? Yeah, so like in Belfast, I, still, I was still freelancing as a journalist in Belfast before I came back down to Dublin in 2009. Um, so again, like anyone, you know when you're just reading in isolation and you're sitting at home, you don't feel that the writing thing, is, you're never going to own it. It's, never, it's going to be like a really weird hobby you'll have, um, like, a, like a kinky embroidery class or something. Like, you know, you're not going to tell anyone you're writing. But when, you, when you're in, on a course in the Writers' Centre and you're surrounded by people who have all the same aspirations as you, and you're being encouraged by writers who've already got there, who've been there and done it, then it starts to become a little bit more real or a little bit more accessible. And you can imagine that yourself doing it. You're re you, you hear how they did it. Because when you read the end product of anything, it's been through a long process, um, or a short process, um, where you know, you've had editors' eyes on it and you've had people mess around with it and people ask you critical questions. You're not, you're not, you're not, it's not the same as your own first drafts at home, which are always dreadful or, you know, frighteningly bad. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, so sitting in on the courses, meeting people at the Writers' Centre who mm -hmm. had already done, their, done it and been mm -hmm. there was very, very important, mm -hmm. to, you know, because it's all about focusing and making it real and believing that you can do it. Yeah. It's a game of confidence. It's a game of resilience. Um, you know, the, the writing's probably only about 10%. The rest is neurosis, like. Going back to... <laughs> Going back right to the beginning of your career, Nula O'Fuelon was a big influence. Like she was your referee yeah. to get on to the MN Creative I'm Writing. I'm so delighted at that. Yeah, I, I interviewed Nula O'Fuelon when I um, I did a postgrad in journalism back in the in the late 90s, and I interviewed her. She was terrifying to interview. It was a really funny interview. But I kept in touch with her by email, and I said to her, Nula, like, please, I, I need to get into this course. Like, will you will you write a reference for me? And she said, Yeah, I'll write a reference for you. But like, you know, don't ever have a child. You'd be a dreadful mother. I was like, Jesus Christ, okay, Grant. So, you know, she was right, by the way, and I did never have a child. So. She, wasn't sure about you being a, she wasn't sure about you being a journalist either. Is that right? Yeah, she had said to me, you know, I wrote this big, long, kind of soppy feature about her, and she just said to me, oh, God, you're way too gentle, and for journalism, it's going to really fuck you up. Just don't do it. Mm. You're a writer. And I was so insulted, and she was right. Mm. She was right. Journalism was tough. Mm -hmm. And I, I didn't have that kind of balls of leather that you need to really push and get somewhere, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and I was more a writer, so I was on the wrong path for quite a long while. That was another thing. So I was quite eager to make that jump when I did eventually jump, you know? 
So the Creative Writing um, Masters in Queen's wasn't the greatest success, but actually the Irish Writers' Centre, by contrast, <laughs> was um, a much better experience. Yeah, I, yeah. What was the next step then? You started um, writing uh, Facebook posts about, <sighs> about your life. No, that's really embarrassing now, because I, I actually, for a long time, in the early days of Facebook, you know, I did use it as kind of free psychotherapy. Um, I couldn't afford a shrink, and I just kept forgetting it was a public forum. So I would just get on in the morning full of rage and just rant, and then I'd like log on two hours later, there'd be loads of people going, you know, I'm so glad you said that, you know, I feel that too, or whatever. So, mm -hmm. um, yeah, I had a complete lack of discretion, and it came back to bite me a few times, you know, like I remember mm -hmm. somebody in work saying to me, you know, like, you know, a couple of people have mentioned that you're a bit nuts on Facebook. It doesn't really do you very good state in, in, in a job. I was like, Jesus, you know. Um, of course, oh, by, I didn't think of that. By contrast, um, it did bring you to the attention of Sinead Gleeson. Yes, so Sinead Gleeson, um, yeah, read the Facebook posts and sent me a message saying, we should have a pint. So we both met up and we have, we have that whole manky hip thing going on. We had hip operations as babies and all that. So that's what we talked about in the pub. And then we talked about wanting to write... And she was setting up the anteroom, mm -hmm. the feminist writer's blog, and asked me would I like to write. And that was really important because it was like a bridge between journalism and creative writing. Mm -hmm. um, you had all the freedom that you didn't have in journalism to write creatively, creative nonfiction, to write and rant in a way that you'd never be able to do unless you had you know, a great column slot or something. And then you could be, that kind of was, was a bridge then towards creative writing. It was giving me ideas as well. Mm -hmm. It was very important. That was a massive turn in the road for me. Mm -hmm. and, and the posts were getting a lot of views. And I ended up winning a blog award actually in 2011 for what I wrote on the, on, mm -hmm. on the website. And then Sinead again um, played a big part. She commissioned you to yeah. write a short story for The Long uh, Gaze back, back, the wonderful Long Gaze Back. That's now one city, one book, yeah. She kind of came to me and said, you know, would you like to write a short story? Like, that took a huge leap of faith from her because she hadn't seen anything creative from me at all. She just said, right, you know, um, it's going to be a lot of really like, great figures in Irish writing and established women writers, and then there'll be unknowns and emerging and all this kind of crack. And I was obviously in the unknown category, so mm -hmm. I was delighted about that. Um, I said, yeah, no problem. And we had nine months or something like that to, to do it. Mm -hmm. And then... Slowly and surely, she told me one or two people that was going to be in it. I was so intimidated, especially when I heard, you know, Ema McBride. I'm a super fan of Ema McBride or Anne Enright. And I was like, oh, my God. So I left the writing till the very last week. I was mm. like an absolute lunatic. And, uh, yeah, my ex-partner had to book two days away in Galway for me. I was just insane. And I went mm. away and wrote it. I didn't tell Sinead that mm. until now. That uh, <laughs> I wrote it two days before the deadline. That's, Yeah. And that story was so much, um, which is, you know, probably one of the strongest, both in the Longest Back collection, but also in your own collection. Could you tell us just briefly uh, the story of that? Because it is mm. very powerful and still very timely. Well, there were two cases that year, sandwiched either side of the year, a Mexican woman um, in, in Texas and then an Irish woman down the country somewhere who both had a very, very similar... The laws are actually quite similar as well. They're kind of um, in b both jurisdictions there. But... Um, they had had aneurysms or, or brain episodes where they were fully brain dead and they happened to be pregnant. One woman was 16 or 17 weeks pregnant, the other woman was 20 weeks pregnant and the bodies were kind of rotting. So the, the, when, it's, when it's at that level, they, it's called somatic treatment. Mm -hmm. They have to drown you out with all kinds of drugs to keep the body alive to, you know, basically... Um, the, the, baby had, the babies had no hope uh, of, ever of, of surviving mm -hmm. and both these women really wanted their children. They were both... 
desperately happy to be pregnant. So it was really cruel and disgusting and to hear about both families having to go to the courts and battle to have these women taking off life support. Like, mm -hmm. can you imagine dealing with the fact that you know that your partner, your wife, is never coming back and she's dead. Mm. She's lying there and there's a, a fetal heartbeat going on and nobody mm. knows how to handle it and what to do. So that's why I tried to imagine, because initially I thought, well, I write it from a doctor's perspective. It must be really hard in a medical profession to have to deal with that, to not mm -hmm. know how to, you're allowed to treat a patient. And I, I thought, I just couldn't figure out who, who to tell the story from. And then I thought, you know what? The fetus, let's write from the fetus perspective. Then, then you can make it surreal and the fetus then can, you know, in a ridiculous way, can hear, hear everything that's going on around it. So mm -hmm. that was kind of like a CCTV view. Yeah. And that's how I decided to write it. I felt really ridiculous. I was terrified sending it off. I remember mm -hmm. pr shaking, pressing the send button and waiting for an answer back from Sinead to say, like, sorry, it's not mm -hmm. for me, you know. She was like, I love it, mm -hmm, yeah. Mm -hmm. And New Ireland loved it as well. More importantly, that was also... And that New yeah. Ireland would, a few months later, approach you on the strength of that one story, basically. No, it was a year later. A year yeah, later. it was a good year later after it had been published. Um, and nothing was happening. I was sending stuff off for competitions and mm -hmm. just trying to write the odd thing. But I was looking after elderly, sick parents. There was a whole hullabaloo there. So that was taking up my life. And... Again, Dan Bulger just said, you know, would you like to do a collection? I thought, yeah, that's great, you know. You have X amount of months. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, great. And then, oh my God, you know. So, yeah. And again, real life kind of intervened. You went through you know, quite a traumatic Yeah, breakup. I had a nasty breakup in the mm -hmm. middle of writing the book, you know. That's why there's probably some themes in there. Mm -hmm. All fiction, all <laughs> fiction. <laughs> But I guess that's what maybe um, what readers don't maybe realise or whatever that you know they only sort of see the the smooth swimming on on the surface of, mm. of the the swan across the water, whereas everything and anything could be happening in in the writer's private life, and that obviously you know casts a shadow or it, it carries a big influence in the subject matter and also how it's written. Yes, yeah. I mean, it certainly influences the writing. I was pretty much like a lunatic writing the book, and that might mm -hmm. come out in the stories. Um, one thing that it did affect is that I, I just didn't have the sense or sensibility to self-censor when I was writing it. Mm -hmm. I just thought, I'm going to write whatever I want to write, how I want to write it, mm -hmm. and then I'll see, I'll go back and tone it down. There wasn't time to go back and tone it down. <laughs> and then I... I <laughs> I didn't want to tone it down because I was still in a rage and mm. I just thought, no, I want to write about the way that I see life or the stories that I've heard or mm -hmm, things that mm -hmm. I've experienced and that's it. Could you tell us, um, I'd say most people here will either have read it or certainly have read reviews, but could you tell maybe for the uninitiated uh, listening in, um, in your own words, uh, um. what the themes of Room Little Darker are, what the stories are about? Yeah, well, I wanted, I, I wanted to have a look at how technology impacts on our lives. Um, I'm a big fan of George, big fan of George Saunders, so mm -hmm. I love his, his work and I loved the way he had covered technology in a lot of his stories and what he had done and mm -hmm. um, Escape from Spiderhead, stories like that had really inspired me. So that's Boybot. He mm -hmm. kind of totally inspired Boybot. And I was disgusted after I wrote Boybot because I, di I re didn't research or look at anything. I thought I had come up with such a, an original idea. And then I remember Googling it mm. and there was a guy in Japan already trying out his Boybot. Mm. A, a, a paedophile in Japan had actually invented one. This 
stop men like himself from abusing children. I was like, Jesus, it's already out there happening. And sometimes that's the way it works. You're just picking up. I hadn't read anything or heard anything, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but you're picking up from the you know, international consciousness. You're picking something up. Mm -hmm. um, again, with the, with the implant, I had actually, at one point, got a contraceptive implant that made me very sick. And then I thought, why did I get that? Why, we're putting chips inside us. This is the next phase. There was an awful lot of news reports about employers actually putting chips inside their employees. Mm -hmm. and to track their Yeah, giving them incentives. You know, mm -hmm, there's mm -hmm. a couple of companies in America doing it, you know, mm -hmm. where you got a Christmas bonus if you allowed them to put a, a little computer chip onto your skin, you know, so they can monitor your overall health. Mm -hmm. And it was kind of, first of all, it was kind of plugged as a way of clocking in and out of work. But then it was like, you know, they also, they're also privy to your blood pressure and mm -hmm, how mm -hmm. much you're drinking and what you're eating and stuff like that. That's absolutely terrifying. If we're going down that route, sure, you know. So those are two of the strangely so they, compelling te technological yeah. um, or futuristic or whatever yeah. stories. Yeah. So there was a couple like that. Then there was a couple of I kind of saw them in couplets. There was two two um, stories about you know kind of junky stories are like you know really kind of awful inner city. Mm -hmm. This is what's happening outside because I was working in, around Parnell Square and I was seeing such grim stuff. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? I remember walking to work along Berkeley Road one morning. I was so tired. I remember walking along and, you know, the basement flats and the big Georgian houses and looking down and I just saw it was a row of arms out. They were all mm. sitting on a, on a couch and they were getting ready to shoot mm. up. Mm. I just saw it going by. I was like, oh my God. It was like half nine in the morning. It's important to say perhaps though that there's also a lot of humour or, or wit in the book. Like, um, like one example, another um, story that I remember you talking about that a story, something that happened was that you were coming out of the Irish Writers' Centre when you were working there and you saw an addict walking down the street and stopping outside Chapter 1, which is next door, yes. and reading aloud um, reading the menu. Reading the menu, which is like extortionate, and he was obviously starving and mm. he was reading it out loud and he was like, ah, he was like reading the steak and the stuff out loud. I was like, that is just desperate, God love him. Mm. Like, probably hasn't eaten for a week, you know. Yeah, you saw a lot of grim stuff around there. So there's but, two but do you also see the humour or the yeah, kind of I mean, irony? It's in... terrible because you shouldn't, you, shouldn't be, you shouldn't laugh at it, but like, yeah, I mean, it's just, it's um, human beings and their lives are ruptured open by addiction or, mm -hmm. you know, by, by really horrendous problems. And, you know, yeah, it's just awful. But, you know, the, the comical way that lives are lived, you know what I mean? And the frenetic, chaotic mm -hmm. ways that lives are lived. And that's what I tried to do in the book with those two stories, which, mm -hmm. which again came from hearing real stories, you know. Another couplet perhaps in the book is the, the, the ones that sort of deal with sex, which as we all know is a subject that people have got very little interest in. Yeah. Um, I was really bored reading about sex and novels and stories where it's all about thinking about, you know, that whole thinking about that intimacy thing and overthinking mm. the navel-gazing nonsense. I thought, nah. You know, like you sit down with your friends in the pub and you talk about crazy stuff that's happened to you or stories that you've heard people indulging in weird stuff or things happening to people or affairs or whatever. And um, yeah, I decided to take a very real approach on that mm -hmm. one. But um, yeah, the kinky one, I didn't, I, the, one, the, the one I wrote quickest, Leitrim Flip, which is the most kinky one in the book, I wrote mm. that. That was another two-dayer, by the way. And I don't know where that came from. <laughs> um, <laughs> I do apologise to common decency for whatever that <laughs> crept out of my head. Um, I think I was probably sexually frustrated or something, but yeah. Okay. Yeah. And you've never been to Leitrim? 
I've never been to. Oh, I was. I, I went. I did. I did a reading there. Okay. In, uh, yeah. Christmas did you read time. that story? Yeah, no, I didn't. Well, remember you. Because <laughs> <laughs> remember you saying that you were up north and you read the the glens of Antrim. Yeah, down I like read. A, the, yeah, it went down balloon. like yeah, mm. uh, yeah, a brick. Yeah. Mm. Um, I thought it's the only one about Northern Ireland in the book. Yeah. I'll read the glens of Antrim. Mm. You know, I'm sure there's passages that aren't that offensive. And then I was, as I was reading it out, I was cringing myself. Mm. Um, and I do cringe, kind of reading some of the stories. Yeah. So I can appreciate how other people might. Do you feel that you are sort of breaking new ground there? Like I think Anne Enright wrote recently that you know there was very little sex in Irish writing. I think there she's you know she probably has a point talking about the tradition and the past. But mm -hmm. actually, like it strikes me that currently, like say Eamon McBride, who you mentioned being a big fan of, and the Lesser Bohemians is an intensely mm. sexual novel. Like I used to joke that it's one of those books that you drop and it would fall open at every page. But yeah. there's also, say, or Kearney Byrne, who is long listed for the Sunday Times uh, Short Story Award this year. And I, we published that story um, in print, and that's about a, like a gay relationship, which is very intensely uh, sexual. And then you had the winner of the Jean of uh, Short Story Prize this year, Louise Nealon. Uh, her story, I don't know if you read that. No, I'm Which you published as well, um, something is feminist, whatever. Um, but it is happening now. I think. Is, do you think people are less inhibited now? Um, I don't even know if we're less inhibited. I think we're ready to we're ready for it. We're ready to read mm. what might be a, a more truthful portrayal of of how and why we have sex. Do you know what I mean? Sure, but um, to, I guess to read that we have to yeah. have writers writing about it, which yeah. maybe wasn't being done before. I don't know. I think yeah. I don't know. I think again, it was always that quiet insinuation. Do you know what I mean in mm. Irish life? You know mm. that people were. Humping, you just wouldn't hear about it, you yeah, know what I mean? Because yeah. everybody was just obsessed with um, warring with each other or mm -hmm, being mm -hmm, rebellious or mm -hmm. whatever else they were obsessed with, politics, nationalism, mm -hmm. do you know what I mean? Every, you know, the domestic wasn't really looked at very, very closely until recent times mm -hmm. in Irish writing. So, yeah, I think we're ready to kind of get a bit more real and raw. And why not, like, you know? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, so I was interested in looking at, at sex as a kind of a power weapon as well, how, how we use and abuse it and how people... Um, you know, might, you know, have weird sex when they're angry or upset or, you know. Mm -hmm. I didn't want to write about just a couple in suburbia, you know, where I live. I didn't want to write about my life, so, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> and in terms, in terms of the, the reaction then, um, how did, like, when you read the reviews, did you, did you feel that people were getting it? Like, obviously, the reviews are very positive, but maybe yeah. sometimes you could have positive reviews, but you would still come away feeling... That's not really what I was trying to do. I, no, look, I was delighted with the mm -hmm. reviews. I really was very scared. In that month after I handed it in, before it hit the bookshelves, after we'd done all the editing and everything, mm -hmm. I was absolutely petrified mm -hmm. how it would be received. Because, you know, I think I did nothing. I just walked around the Botanic Gardens and did nothing. And then I went back and looked at the stories and I was like, oh, my God, <laughs> you know. And I didn't expect it to, to do well. I really didn't. Mm -hmm. So when the first reviews came out and they were positive, I was just so happy at that. That was just fantastic. Mm -hmm. I was surprised that people found it so shocking. Mm. And then I kind of thought, are they finding it shocking because a woman has wrote, written it? And I'm not using that as a lazy excuse, but um, you had a lot of um, men in recent years writing very successful novels that are books that were quite violent and sexual and all those overtones and mm -hmm. undertones. And I thought, are they just saying that because it's a woman? That really, like, is it just, are you really not supposed to write like that? But mm -hmm. um, then I kind of didn't care. I felt quite rebellious about that. Then I didn't care if they found it shocking. I 
thought, no, it's real life as I see it. I'm not, I didn't deliberately set out to shock, and that's been insinuated a few times as well, which is actually quite annoying. Mm -hmm. um, I haven't deliberately tried to mm -hmm. shock at all. And in actual fact, and in my book, the two of the strongest stories in the collection um, are maybe quite different. They're the two family ones mm. that bookend it, that start and mm. finish it. And, you know, they're shocking, yes, but, you know, perhaps in, in a very different way. Well the, well, the first one is maybe shocking. The last one is actually very moving and, and you know, beautifully constructed. Would you like to maybe talk a little about those two as, as a couple? Yeah, well, the first one was kind of based on something and things that had happened. Um, and that, you know, my dad did have a stroke. He is in a nursing home now. Um, you know, he was a bad drinker in his life and that did have an effect on the family. And you're not supposed to talk about that either. You're not supposed to talk about anything. That's why you end up just writing it all down. Mm. Um, it's a rebellion against that. Be quiet and don't say anything. So that was the story. I kind of, kind of took it a step further because we felt very guilty when he had the stroke. We had to have him taken out of the house and he was in a nursing home. Mm. We felt, somehow felt like we hadn't taken care of him properly. We had, we'd done everything we could. So I, you know, we felt guilty, and that's how I, it was. We were traumatized, basically, and that's how I imagined that he was haunting the house. Mm -hmm. So that's what that's that's where that story came from, and it is quite creepy. I had written that originally for a gothic anthology, um, and they didn't, they refused it. They didn't like it. Mm. So that's why it's written in a very strange, old-fashioned voice. Mm -hmm. It was supposed to be a, a nod to Lefanu, the, mm -hmm. the Irish mm -hmm. writer mm -hmm. who lived a long time ago. So yeah. that's why it's a different story to the rest of the book. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then the last. The last story, my brother did die in his 40s of cancer and it was very traumatic and um, dramatic. It was an incredible story in itself and I decided to try and write about him and then I was like, oh, I just thought I'd do it backwards, start with the dead body and move backwards through our lives and picked out some scenes that we had shared over the years. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we'd lived in London and Jersey and travelled a lot and all that kind of thing. So. That was just a way of, of oh, writing a that. It's a, beautifully it, tender it's a lazy portrait. way of structuring it yeah. in a way. It's almost like just tell a life story backwards. Mm -hmm, you mm -hmm. know. So, like, you've produced a really good short story collection um, and to great crit critical acclaim. But I guess in contrast, there's I don't know if people realise just sort of you know how the financial rewards are so so poor. I guess in terms of. I don't know if you want to go into the details or whatever, like, but really you do not earn an awful lot of money from writing mm. a short story, story collection. But you, you, you don't become a writer for money, and, mm. you know, like, you know, Jesus, I, I, I don't know, if you're gonna become a writer for money, maybe write for the gaming industry or something, you know? I mean, short stories, they're, they're I mean, it, it's like nursing or something, you know what I mean? You're, mm. it's, it's a vocation, mm -hmm. you're not gonna make a penny from, same as poets, poets are not gonna make money either. Mm -hmm. Um, maybe there's money to be made from novels, maybe if they do really well. You cannot go into it thinking like that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It has to be about what you want to write mm -hmm. and about the work. Um, yeah, and also just over the last couple of years, because I have been looking after elderly family members and caring for people, I haven't been working apart from volunteering and then I did get a job in the Writers' Centre. Mm -hmm. So I had, the, I had the time to develop and do that. Um, and I, I feel for writers who have families and jobs, how do people with babies write and children running around and mm -hmm. how do they squirrel away for a couple of hours and do it? So in a way I'm very lucky. Um, but of course, I have no expectations of ever earning mm -hmm. money. You know, I did get an advance for a novel, you know what I mean? It's, it wasn't a six-figure advance. I watched your woman got seven-figure advance. <laughs> Seven figures for a short story collection. What about mm -hmm. that, lads? I mean, nuts. So yeah, there's going to be one or two tales like that and, 
course, everybody dreams of yeah. having enough money to pay your mortgage mm -hmm, or mm -hmm. buy a car, or go on a holiday. But like, I've no expectations of that at all. Is the novel the natural progression then, or do you think you would have moved from short stories to a novel anyway, or is that is that partly kind of the demands of the publishing industry? No, I always wanted to write a novel, and I tried mm. on the MA um, really badly to write something, and that's what I'm going back to doing, mm -hmm. to doing it now that I have a bit more experience. That's that same plot, that same yeah, storyline. Yeah, same idea. Mm -hmm, yeah, mm -hmm. and so the, the stories have come as a surprise to me. Mm -hmm. They're kind of accidental. I never really set out to do this. So yeah, a novel next, mm -hmm. and you know who knows? I'll get back to stories. I love them. They've exhausted me. I'm, I'm out mm -hmm, of stories mm -hmm, at the moment. Mm -hmm. But, um, Maybe we'll yeah. come back on to the to the novel next. But would you like to perhaps to to read uh, an extract from yeah. one of the stories? I will. Um, do I do it from the left in there, or can I do it from here? Um, your choice. Let me see. I've read the same ones over and over, so I might I might um, I might just pick the last couple of scenes from Cadaver's moves, actually, from the Blackpool scene. The, the end. Yes, is this, that this right? is the one about um... about my brother. It's, there's a couple of scenes going back to their lives, and this is from when they're children. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So you want me to read for a few minutes? Yes, please. I'm an expert at this now. I know exactly how long everything takes. <laughs> so how many minutes exactly? So I know how many pages. Five. Okay. So these are the, these are when they're children, and it goes back in time. There's an oil slick all along the beach in Blackpool when we get our first proper look at the promenade. Blackened seagulls and other smaller birds, stiff in horror, a forfeit of high commerce. Isn't that terrible? I bet there'll be no swimsuit competition this year, our mom says. We look at each other and snicker. Moonhead is pissed out of his balls driving the car. He forbids, he forbids any more children's talk until he can get another double whiskey down the gullet, but we are too excited. Look at the trams, I say. Big deal, you say. Shut it, mom says. Yeah, shut it, Moonface says. At the Sunnybank B&B, a Welsh woman with huge tits and plaited loaves high hair tells us the oil slick has caused a lot of damage to business. The husband's a pansy, Moon said, Moonhead says, as we make our way up the stairs. They said they keep the residence bar open until 1am. There are two single beds and a double in the room, a shower and toilet shared with another couple from the Isle of Man. Dinner is served in small silver bowls, hot chicken soup with, re with reconstituted small vegetables floating around, followed by chicken and chips and strawberry ice cream served in the same silver bowls, still warm from the soup. All the way from Ireland, the Welsh woman says, pointing us out to the other diners who stare and nod. I put plastic dog shit in his bed, you say, knowing that Moonface was born minus his sense of humour and will punch one of us in the face for misbehaving. Don't, I plead, just don't. Every holiday in Blackpool starts the same way. We're going to the Tower Ballroom tonight, your father wants a dance, and tomorrow we'll hit the pleasure beach, Mum says, looking stupidly happy. I'm going to a punk disco, you announce. I saw a poster for it earlier. Mom says, on your Nelly, you're 13. Outside, the streets are flushed with red and blue windmills, buckets and spades, giant jelly infant soothers, kiss me quick felt bowler hats, polystyrene triangles loaded with smelly periwinkles. I try skipping along, but you keep pushing me into small bumpy walls, scraping the skin of my arms. There are donkeys being pulled home along the pathways by vendors. Candy floss lights up fairy pink under flashing neon on makeshift fairground stalls. 
Bingo men shout out numbers. Face painters pull us in and Moonface pulls us out again. Inside the tower, there's a map of what's on each floor, an aquarium, jungle gyms, a, a softball pit, a dungeon, a circus. We're herded into the lift to the darkened dance hall and told to sit still while they hit the dance floor. I'm off, you say. Tell them I've gone to the toilet. I wait around for a while and go look for you. You're kissing a girl called Paula at a viewing window three floors above. It is a shock to see you kissing someone, but you seem to know how to do it proper. Piss off, you say. You're getting too grown up for me. Moonface is seething we left the drinks unattended at their table. Some gobshite has taken away a globule of yellow that was still sat happy in his glass. Where's that pup, he asks about you. But I will not tell. Not now or into forever. A bald man bangs an organ and mom says, isn't this lovely? Are we having a great time? A security man pulls you into the ballroom, dragging you towards mom and Moonface. Is he yours, he asks, as if you are a dog. He's been drinking beer out there in the corridor. This is a terrible thing to happen. Moonface says, you'll get my belt later. You look away and don't seem to care. All the way back, mom is saying, don't, for God's sake, don't, they're on their holidays. At the B&B, Moonface slams the front door, unable to contain his anger. Mom says, go upstairs, I'll take your father to the bar to calm him down. You jump on the bed and tell me you got the tit off Paula and are meeting her tomorrow night for more. I don't know what this means, but I can tell you are excited. Do you love her? I ask. And you say you might well do for a week anyway. Look, you shout, with your head full out the window, legs splayed behind. It's unreal. I run over and stick my head out. What? Where? I say. You pull the heavy Victorian window down onto the small of my back, jamming me into place. Tell them I've gone to the punk disco. I'm a teenager now. I can do what the fuck I like. You're an egg-throwing mop of blonde, a fire-toting wild Indian of six, burning fire, spitting fire, room to room. No one can stop you. A mother tries, a sister tries, brothers try. Run screaming from room to room across the imprint of lino squares, kitchen press twine in your hair, hands smacking your mouth to make the screams even louder, bursting out in bags of air, breaking small toys under wildcatting feet, hands spinning, knocking anything over in your fireball of go, sending newspapers, weather balloon uppers, stories of guerrilla warfare in other countries far away in mid-1970. Out to the front garden, to the piercing light, to the horny dogs barking, to the sandy-coloured Labrador dogs that tear back into the gloss silver gates after you, and you, run, you run in circles, kicking up muck, so excited around the carefully planted line of rose bushes, roses of yellow with tea fragrance and delicious fruity undertones, red roses that smell of bagatelle nothing but make great hammocks for fat rearing bees, spinning circles of, of children and happy animals, of thrown down tennis rackets and abandoned footballs, rolling with the wind into the centre where the grass is thickest and flattened by rusty bicycles and doll prams. All the other children on the street are screaming, wild Indian too, scorching, surging, citron rays of summer, brown tights on small faces pulled from underwear drawers when someone big and bulky in a pinafore is at work, out the back pushing wet clothes through a hand-operated roller, pungent smells of vegetable patch manure on tall rhubarb, 
They hear you screaming and join in, belting in from other gardens, hands grabbing hands, falling, rolling legs and blue shorts, rolling right up to the grey, bumpy nodules of half walls, bashing into each other, bruising knees, knees with patches of green. Owl ones with croissant curls shove their heads out white iron windows to say, whoosh, and stop that, and there'll be wigs on the green if you keep this up. You gather your posse and tear through the house, out into the back garden, up onto the coal shed, over the garage, jumping down onto the wall in the front garden and back in circles and do it all over again. Stop this, our mother roars. Jesus Christ, I'm gone half mad. She snatches you by the scruff and closes the front door and the other kids without explanation. Get in there and calm the hell down. I didn't ask for a blue bottle for a son. I am splayed on the couch in a cloth nappy, my legs flailing. You are a slug, you tell me, and I laugh. My big wide eyes follow you left, right, left, right, as you run around the couch screaming, peekaboo, peekaboo, falling to your knees in front of me so I can just see your head. When you, little missy, came along, I poured Ma's perfume down the sink and flushed her wedding ring down the jacks. I gurgle and swing my arms at you, but they can't reach. My knees are cold, milky spit dribbles from my mouth. I was going to throw you down the stairs to break your neck. Then I started to like you, even if you smell. You jump up and run around the couch in the opposite direction, screaming, peekaboo, peekaboo, until you run out of wind. You might not know this yet because you're so stupid and small, but I was here before you and I'll always be Ma's favorite. I laugh uncontrollably, as you are just so unbelievably great. I am your very big handsome brother, you say. I'm taller than you and better than you and cleverer than you and more special than you, but I am still your big brother. You start to twist on the ground, gripping your knees tight as you go, spinning like a tomato, howling out the words I will always be so happy to hear. I am your brother. I am your brother. I am your brother. That's very powerful. Thanks. Um, now, you're working on a novel, but you've already written a book prior to this, um, which is very different. Yes. Do you want to drag that up again? Not really. The, the, yeah, a non-fiction book, yeah, about Johnny Dare's mistress. Mm. Yeah. How did that come about? Through my ex. Basically, everything that came through him was, you know, fraught with danger and madness. So, yeah, that was just another example. Um, I was, he said, you know, there's a woman that I, I, I quoted in, in one of his books. He wrote a book about the UDA, and it was, mm -hmm. he'd quoted her in there and talked to her, um, would I like to write her story? I knew nothing about politics, um, especially Northern Irish politics, apart from what we all know about. And let's face it, a lot of the time we were able to turn the tellies off down here, which is terrible, but we were able to disconnect from what was going on. Mm -hmm. And I thought it would be a challenge um, to get in there and write a woman's story. I was so sick of hearing about the blokes, you know? There was all these um, books about paramilitary males flexing their chimpanzee muscles, and you know, blah, blah, blah. And I thought, no, I want to hear a woman's story. Um, I don't care what side of the fence she's on. I just want to hear, uh, yeah, about a woman who falls in love with one of these killers, you know? So that's what I did, but it was really hard to do. It was, you know... Did you end up living with her? Or I had to go up there and do all these interviews. She wasn't, she wasn't very... Um, she wasn't opening up very much. Mm -hmm. She'd wanted desperately to do the book, and then she was frightened to say anything, so it was like, Jesus Christ. And then I thought, all I have to do is get her drunk, because down here, that's all you ever had to do to get a journalism interview. <laughs> and she didn't drink or take drugs or smoke or do anything. I was like, she was sitting on a couch, you know, I'm, I'm very nervous talking about it. I was like, all right, okay, well, you know, you really have to 
tell me shit because time is running out and I've got like, I think I had, again, I had like six weeks to write 80,000 words or something. Mm. And there's a couple, like, and I remember handing it into the publishing company at the time and saying, you need to go and do an edit of that. They didn't, they just published, they just pressed mm. print. So there's a, I spelled the Shankill Road wrong in the first sentence. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> That's what a good journalist I was. Okay. Yeah, and um, yeah, there's a couple of bits repeated, but yeah, the stories themselves of how they lived and what they did, you know. And again, there you go, sex stories. There's lots. She told me lots about how sexually excited they got after a killing, mm. right? And the whole sex and death thing really shocked me at the time. I just ended up having so many nightmares. Um, yeah, so it was a very quick project. It had a had a horrible effect on me, really. Mm -hmm. um, I was kind of sorry I did it in the end, but you know, you can't you can't have regrets. Everything is a learning process. Sure. At least I learned how to write a book in six weeks. That was handy. And now the novel, which might be a novella or it might be interlinked short stories. No, no, it'll be, it'll be, it's going to be quite fragmented. Um, it's a novel, it won't mm -hmm. be a novella. Um, I love the idea of writing short stories that are connected. So we'll see if, if I can do that. Mm -hmm. um, if not, it will be a, a kind of disparate, strange, dark, Tale, but it would hopefully be more elegant than these fellas here. That's and what I'm aspiring to mm -hmm. for it, yeah. And again, the subject matter is quite dark. It is about one of the, the women in Ireland who well, disappeared. It's, it's loosely based on the missing women, and we all remember that story. Um, I was, I was, at the time, I was living down in Galway, and I used to hitch from Galway back to Dublin at the same time that these women were going missing. And that always stuck out in my head. You always think you're in control. Um, you always think you have the upper hand and what happens when you get into a car and what happens when you realise in that moment that you're, you're not going to make it out of that car. Where does your head go? So that's what I'm kind of imagining. It's not, it doesn't follow any of the real life stories. Mm -hmm, it's just mm -hmm. loosely based okay. on that time. So, you know, mm -hmm, yeah. Mm -hmm. And how are you doing writing against the clock? Because I remember um, you saying in another interview that used to actually go into one of the internet cafes in Parnell Street when you had um, a deadline uh, for maybe to enter a competition or whatever, and actually pay to write, in other words. Charge myself to yeah. sit and write. You know, like, I mean, yeah, that's, they're, they're the kind of games you have to mm. play with yourself to actually get the writing done. I found that a really, I found that a really good exercise. Mm. You go in and say, right, I've only got two hours, and they're charging me two euro an hour, whatever it is, and I have to buy a coffee. And, you know, there's a couple of weirdos sitting around. I'm not going to feel very comfortable. I put the earphones on and I have to concentrate and mm -hmm, do it. Mm -hmm. Sometimes when you sit at home, you'll find anything to distract you. You will be down on your hands and knees bleaching skirting boards if you have a deadline. <laughs> um, you know, you will, you will scrub the corners of the bath that haven't been scrubbed since 1972 or whatever. Mm. Um, so I found that a great discipline. It was like going out to a job, you know. And also, when you're in, a, when you're in an environment outside your own home, sometimes it's it's really good to be able to disassociate from your environment and, and think and, and be creative and write, you know? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. A bit of chaos going on around you. So you've been listening to myself, Martin Doyle, uh, books editor of the Irish Times for the Irish Times Book Club podcast. And thanks to Mounts to see you again for hosting us this evening. Thanks so much. Cheers. Thank, Thank you. you.